turn please to Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians in chapter 2, I want to read. Beginning with verse 17, I have verse 19 marked, but I, be, I think I want to begin with verse 17. Philippians in chapter 2, verse 17 through the end of this, this chapter. looking at you smiling because I wonder how many of you know we have a first hymn. There weren't this many when I gave the call to worship. I was just curious about that. So you can just a word to the wise that we do have a first hymn and you can actually be here right at 11 or 10.45. I probably got into trouble there. But I just wanted, it's just amazing how many more of you there are right now than there were half an hour ago. But welcome. Welcome. Okay, that's, that's good. Well, now that I said that, let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and grace, and I pray now as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to it, and that you would be glorified through it, that this would be uh, worship as we hear and listen, and that you would so engage our minds and our hearts in this, and we'd get it and respond to it in a way that offers many expressions of thanksgiving. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out, the eye there is Paul, by the way, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering among the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I open the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you to Epaphroditus, uh, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill indeed he was ill near to death but God had mercy on him and not only on him but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I must confess that this was one of those passages upon first reading that I thought about skipping. I didn't only, or at least primarily, the thing that got me to this passage or kept me with this passage through Friday was that I do have a conviction that it's best for me not to skip things uh, on my own whim or my own interest but to take them up and to see what God would have for us in every section of the scripture because I think God has given his word to us in this way various forms and narratives and letters and so forth and that it's best for us simply to take it up as it comes and see what's here but frankly this particular part of this letter is sort of FYI Timothy's coming, I hope to come, but I'm sending Epaphroditus. 
That's pretty much what's here. It's a letter. He's giving them some information about what's going to take place. And it seemed to me that that, that was really a letdown uh, from some of the things we've considered. Like the great prayer of Paul in the beginning where he's praying a prayer of thanksgiving for their partnership in the gospel because they've sent money to him and they've supported him and he's partners with them. And even though they're suffering, while he's suffering, they're living together to defend and confirm the gospel. And that's great. And then he prays that wonderful prayer for them that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that they may be able to approve that which is excellent to be found pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes uh, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That great prayer. I hope you're still praying that, by the way, for us. But, but that great prayer. And, and this just seems, after you preach about that great prayer, to just say, Timothy's coming and... I'm coming and sending Epaphroditus. It just doesn't seem like he got the same. And then, of course, he goes on and he gives that great description of his own life, that he's such a gospel-centered man, that even though he's in prison in Rome, that's okay because the gospel is advancing. And even though people are preaching in such a way as to make his life more difficult for him, that's okay because the gospel is advancing. What's really important is that the gospel be declared, that the gospel be preached. That's a, a great thought. And then he goes on to say that so much a gospel-centered man is that he's a Christ-centered man because the gospel is the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so a gospel-centered man is one who glorifies Christ because to speak of the gospel is to speak about Christ. And so he says, Therefore, for me to live is Christ. My whole life is Christ. And to die is gain. You know, to go from that to Timothy's coming, I'm going to come and Epaphroditus is being sent just seems to, and then he goes on to tell them about their lives that they are now to live worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ meaning that they're to stand firm in one spirit strive together with one mind for the faith of the gospel and not being afraid by anything that their opposition brings to them but rather to understand that God, God's grace has come to them that they might believe and also God's grace has come to them that they might suffer. Those are very solemn, challenging, deepening, maturing kinds of words. And to, to move from that to Timothy's going to come and I'm going to come and Paphroditus is being sent. And then he goes on, of course, to say if you want to live like this, you must have the mind of Christ. And he tells us that great incarnation of Christ who being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but, but emptied himself made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross the most humiliating kind of death that was the obedience of Christ and then God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a great passage of Christ and what great implications for our own lives that we're to be like that. We're to have the humble, self-sacrificing love of Christ for others. That's to be our life. What a great thing to think about. And I move from that to... But now that, he tells them now that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling very seriously, because it's God who is at work in them. 
And it's God who is at work in them in such a way that together, working out their salvation in fear and trembling, that they can now, without bickering and without arguing, without strife amongst them, that they would be able to shine like lights in this wicked and crooked generation, holding fast to the word of life. That's a, that's a great thought. A great identity for us as the church. And quite frankly, to move from that, Timothy, Epaphroditus. But then, I read and I thought, and the reason that this passage seems so unpreachable to me is because it's so profound, it sort of just snuck up. Because the beauty of this passage is how normal and natural these things come. Because what Paul, I think, is doing here, not necessarily intentionally, that is to say, he isn't saying, well, I've said said this, now I need to say this. But this just kind of flows from him as the natural next thing to talk about. After he talked about being partners in the gospel, and after he's talked about being able to approve that which is excellent, and actually after he's talked about the, 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 the prominence of the gospel, how Christ is our life, and after he's talked about how we're to stand firm and strive together and be of one mind and have the very mind of Christ to humble ourselves in self-sacrificial love towards others and to work out our salvation together, it just leads him to say, and, in the, and because of all that, let me tell you what I'm going to do, and let me tell you what Timothy's going to do, and let me tell you what Epaphroditus is going to do. It just sort of comes from that. The beauty of it is, is that it's so natural that it seems mundane, but it's not. Because what we have here is the very application of everything Paul has been talking about. Because you see, he's been giving us, in one sense, heavy theology good, solid doctrine about the gospel, about Christ, about prayer, about obedience. And now he's applying that, which is the way it always must be. Uh, We spoke last week, grammatically, about imperatives and indicatives. That indicatives come first, statements of fact. Imperatives come next, always in the scripture. That what we do is always predicated upon, always based upon what God has done. Uh, those verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for or because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Always the indicative logically comes before the imperative. It, we get the fact before we must act is how it goes. We see that in our own conversion. God works in our hearts, gives us new life, so that we can respond to him in faith. Even in the Exodus, when God comes before Israel at Mount Sinai, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law and then declare who he is. He says, this is what I've done, now this. Respond to me this way. That's why you must always pay very close attention to the, all the connecting words in your Bible. Underline all the fors and the becauses and the so that's because what he's done is giving you some theology and now the implication of that. And that's the way it always must be. James says faith without works is dead. That is, it's dead faith. It's also true that works without faith is dead. 
that those works mean nothing. Because theology must always lead to life. Doctrine is always to be put into practice. And so what we have here, I think, is Paul putting everything he said into practice. He's showing how all this sort of plays out. And, and, and not to disparage the inspiration of Scripture, but I can't honestly say that that's Paul's intention. I don't even know that he knows he's doing it, if you will. It's just flowing from him. He's saying, given who we are, given what is true, given the centrality of the gospel, this is how we live our lives. And I'm just giving you some information about how we live our lives, but we must pay attention to that. Because that's how we're to live our lives in response to everything he said. Are you with me? Are you following this? Okay, I know it's a little weird, but come with me now. Look at verse 17, how Paul describes his own life. He says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Now, that's an interesting expression. Now, a drink offering hearkens us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Drink offerings, however, weren't that big a deal. It wasn't like a kager, you know, uh, or a big... It was just this cup of strong drink that was poured out on the offering that the main sacrifice had been um, made, cut, and there it was. Before it would get burned up, they'd take a big cup, strong drink, and pour it on. So it was pretty incidental, at best complimentary. And we don't know all the reasons for the drink offering. It had no atoning effect. All it says in the scripture in response to the drink offering is that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That is to say that the drink offering sort of sweetened the sacrifice. Because, and if we could speak very earthy here for a moment, Old Testament sacrificial system worship smelled. Think about it. You go to church, and what are they doing? They're killing animals. That smells. It's just not pleasant. And it wasn't supposed to be pleasant. It was supposed to remind of sacrifice for sin, the penalty of sin. And so to keep things sweet, <laughs> there was all kinds of little things, incense and drink offering. Now, Paul uses that expression to define and describe his own life in relationship to the Christians in Philippi. He's saying, you're making the big sacrifice by standing up to Caesar and taking whatever it is that you have to take, whatever persecution or ridicule as being Christians. And all I'm doing is coming alongside you as the drink offering to sweeten your burden, to make your life more sweet, if at all I possibly can. Now, I think when the history of, if the history of Christianity were written, and there were various chapters on the most important figures in the history of Christianity, it would go something like this. Jesus, although it's interesting, about 15 years ago, I couldn't be that old. Huh. About 15 years ago, I was reading in one of those end-of-the-year things on the most important events. Well, somebody did one of the most important events in history list, top 100. Paul came in third. Jesus came in like 29th. 
I didn't get that. So, but if you're writing a real history of Christianity, of a significant people, Jesus would no doubt be first, it seems to me. But then I think you would put the Apostle Paul. But look at how Paul thinks of himself. He thinks of himself merely as a drink offering. And he looks at the church in Philippi and he's saying, this your sacrificial offering of your faith is great. And I'm simply coming alongside you to compliment you, to help you, to, to sweeten your burdens. Now I think in the list of, of, of important figures in the history of Christianity would go Jesus, Paul, and then maybe 42nd would be the church at Philippi. But that wasn't Paul's view. Paul's view was Jesus, the church in Philippi, And Paul was just a drink offering. Why? Because he knew Christ. And Christ was his life. And he knew who he was in Christ. And he knew who he was because of Christ. And everything he was, he was because of Christ. And he realized that it was Jesus who was the center of all this, not him. And that he was privileged enough to be a part of this. And so he was simply a drink offering. That's how he understood him. Himself, And I wonder about us. What's our self-identity when it comes to ministry? To use the expression that Jesus used in a different context. I think sometimes we think what we do in the body of Christ is the log, and what everybody else does in the body of Christ is the speck. And so we get very much involved in our logness, and their speckness doesn't seem all that significant. But Paul said, what you're doing, church in Philippi, is the logness. I'm the speck. And so just think of me as someone coming alongside as a drink offering to sweeten your life, to sweeten your burden, to sweeten whatever this is costing you. That's how he understood himself to be. That, I think, is what Paul meant when he said, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Of all the ones who should think highly of himself, it is the Lord Jesus. And yet he humbled himself. Again, I love the image of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples because you see, I think, the whole life of Jesus flashing before your eyes. You see the incarnation because there you see This man who's dressed like the others, no doubt even perhaps dressed as the teacher, as the master. If you looked at the 13 of them together on that evening before Jesus washed their feet, you look at Jesus and you go, he's the teacher because he's more dignified than the other. But then he takes off his dignity and he strips down to where if another uh, person walked in, they would look at him and say, oh no, he's the slave. Thus we see the very incarnation of Jesus. As he comes and he empties himself, he takes off his own dignity and he becomes a man. Not only a man, but a servant. Not only a servant, but one who serves all the way to the point of death on a cross. The greatest indignity a person could suffer. So there he is, you see. And that's the mind of Christ. And Paul, I think, was exhibiting that Very naturally, this is simply how he thought of himself. This flowed from him, given everything he knew and everything else. That he said, this is how I understand myself. I come alongside you. It's just to sweeten sweeten your burden, just to sweeten your load. And then he says to them, I'm going to send along Timothy. 
verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send <clears throat> Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. A couple of things to notice, just kind of as an aside, if you'll go with me. First notice, Paul's hope was not in Timothy, nor himself, but in the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, I hope in the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, I trust in the Lord. Uh, Paul was in prison at this time. He didn't really know what was going to happen, although he had a sense, it seems, an inclination that he'd be free so he could come and minister to the church in Philippi. But, 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 but his only hope could be in Jesus, not in Rome or its courts or its justice. And so he hoped in the Lord. But there's something else here in verse 23 that I think we have to think about. He says, I hope therefore to send him, that is Timothy, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I th- see how it will go with me. Now, you think, Paul... That sounds selfish. Saying, listen, I'd like to send him, but I can't send him now because I, I have to see first how it's going to go with me. And that sounds very selfish and very sort of out of character for what Paul's been saying. And so let's give Paul the benefit of the doubt and say that it is in character and thus it's not really selfish. And I think it's not really selfish because Paul is a man with a clear conscience. Because Christ is his life. And thus he's not only concerned about the Christians in Philippi, and he's not only concerned about the gospel advancing in Philippi, but he's also concerned about the Christians in Rome. And he's also concerned about the gospel advancing in Rome. And so now he has to think about how best to use these kingdom resources that I have. I've got me, I've got Timothy, and I've got Epaphroditus. What should we do? Well, Paul can't do much. He's in prison. But he knows that if his prison work is to prosper, he needs Timothy. And so he can't just take Timothy away and send him to Philippi just yet. Not until the work is over in Rome. But he can send Epaphroditus. And that's even a great cost to Paul. Because Paul describes Epaphroditus as in, in verse 25 as my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. This is not an inconsequential man that he's sending back. It's Epaphroditus. So I don't think it's selfish. I think it's a man with a clear conscience. A gospel-centered man. A man whose love is abounding more and more in all knowledge and discernment can approve that which is excellent. Even if it means sounding selfish. Even if it means, Timothy, you stay with me. Epaphroditus, you go. You get that? Okay, that's just a little sermonette. But Timothy, in coming, is being sent by Paul eventually. Because notice, in verse 20, he says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests. Now, here's where Paul throws me a curve. Here's how I would have written this. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not the interests of others. That seems to make far more immediate sense, flow much better, if I was Paul's editor, than what he wrote. Because all of a sudden he says, he says, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
How could he say that? He could say that because the only reason that Timothy was concerned about their interest was because he was primarily concerned about the interests of Christ. Because a person who is Christ-centered, who is seeking the interests of Christ, Christ will seek the interest of others. Someone who is seeking the interest of Christ will be concerned about the interests of others. Why? Because if you had an entry in the dictionary that said, concerned for others, the definition would be Jesus. Why are you saved? Because he was concerned for you. Even to the point of emptying himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so when a Christian is concerned for others, we can say he's a person who is seeking the interests of Christ. That was Timothy. Think about Jesus for a second. Turn Matthew chapter 9. In verse 35, Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, why did he do that? Certainly, we could say he did that because he was announcing who he was. He was announcing that he was the Christ. And everyone knew that when the Christ came, that he would heal, and that he would proclaim the kingdom. And so in doing that, every time someone was healed, people should say, oh, the Messiah is here. But why is it that when the Messiah came, he would be expected to heal? And he would be expected to be concerned about every affliction. Because that's the Messiah. That's the interest of Christ. The interest of Christ is to help. The interest of Christ is to be merciful. The interest of Christ is to be gracious. He said, I've come not to condemn the world, but to save it. The interest of Christ. So verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Well, why did he have compassion for them? Because that's his interest. That's his heart. So if someone is seeking the interest of Christ, then it's a person who is compassionate, as Christ is compassionate. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep Without a shepherd, when Jesus looked at people, he didn't see them as bankers or lawyers. He didn't see them as smart or not so smart. He didn't see them as influential or not influential. He didn't see them so much as rich and poor. But when he looked upon the masses of people, he understood them as how they were, as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And that's what moved him, because he knew himself to be the shepherd. In compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He said, listen, I have compassion for these people. If you want my interest to be your interest, you'll be concerned for them. So Paul says about Timothy, he's the only one here who's concerned for you because the others are just concerned for their own interest. But he, the interests of Christ. 
Are you... Can I say this just really bluntly? Are you just disgusted with your own selfishness? If so, the cure is to seek the interest of Christ as husbands. If you want to be a better husband, what should you do? You should seek the interest of Christ. Why? Because you know who your your husband, you know who Christ is interested in? Your wife. He's interested that you love her as he's loved the church. So wife, want to be a better wife? Seek the interests of Christ. You know why? Because Christ is interested in your husband. Parents. Want to be better parents? Seek the interests of Christ. You know why? Because Christ is interested in your children. I was going to say, children, you want to be better children, but I'm not sure that's a struggle yet. But if you do, seek the interests of Christ. Why? Because Christ is interested in your relationship with your parents. If you want to be a better friend, if you want to be a better Sunday school teacher, if you want to be a better counselor, if you want to be a better... Seek the interests of Christ. And as you do, you see your concern will be taken from your interests to theirs. That's why it's important for us to continue to be the church. It's important for you to still come here. It's important for you to be involved in Bible studies. It's important for you to be involved in every aspect of the church because this is the only place where you're going to be shown what Christ is interested in. Nowhere else do people sit you down and say, this is what Jesus is interested in. Only in the context of church. Only from his word. Timothy was a God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered man interested in seeking the things of Christ, thus not concerned for himself, but he found himself concerned for others as Christ would be. Then Epaphroditus, very quickly, verse 25, I thought it necessary to send send to you Epaphroditus. Now Epaphroditus had come from Philippi to Rome, bringing this present, this gift to Paul to help him. And now Paul's sending him back. In the meantime, when he came, Epaphroditus got very sick Sick to the point of death. So much so that Paul can only say that God was merciful on him to save him from this physical death. But he thinks highly of Epaphroditus. He calls him his brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. Minister to my need. But notice what he says in verse 30. He says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So much was Epaphroditus, a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, mind-of-Christ man, that he was willing to leave, leave Philippi and to go to Rome and risk his very life so that the gospel through Paul could be advanced, no doubt, because he and the people in Philippi were more interested in Paul and his interests and his life than their very own. I picked up a book this week in the local bookstore. 
Christian bookstore. And it's a book for children. I do this a lot. I buy children's books. Karen buys way more children's books than I do. But I like to buy children's books, A, because they're easy to read, B, because I'm always looking for books for parents, now that my children are older, look for books for parents that you can read to your kids and teach them good things. Um, Turn off the TV, read books to each other. When our kids were little, we practiced a form of child abuse called no television. We didn't have a TV. First we put it in the closet. That's really uncomfortable to sit in there. Uh, uh, but, then, but we got rid of the TV. And for a number of years, we didn't, so we read a lot. Um, read a lot of books. So this is a great, a great book. It's entitled Trial and Triumph, Stories from Church History from a person I don't know, Richard uh, Hanula. He's a Presbyterian type, it looks like, so I don't know what that means. But he... Um, but he writes about the great saints. It's sort of like Fox's Book of Martyrs without as much gore. So it, if you have a child, middle elementary school, I think through high school, a couple of pages, you could read these together at dinner or in the evening. But it talks about great ones like Epaphroditus because you see when God calls us to follow him, to seek the interests of Christ, we do, the, do that knowing we may well be called upon to risk our own lives. Now that may sound very dramatic, but it may not be in your life, plus, even still, in more mundane affairs, we're called to sacrifice our lives. For instance, this great saint, John Wycliffe, many of you know, 14th century, um, listen to this, great trouble, engulfed Oxford University during the winter of 1378. For John Wycliffe, the leading philosopher and theologian of Oxford, stood condemned by the Church of Rome, enraged by Wycliffe's ideas. Pope Gregory XI had sent sealed documents declaring Wycliffe a heretic to the King of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Chancellor of of Oxford University. John Wycliffe, he wrote, is vomiting out of the filthy dungeon of his heart most wicked and damnable heresies. He hopes to deceive the faithful and lead them to the edge of destruction. He wants to overthrow the church and bring ruin to the land. Arrest Wycliffe immediately and hold him until a church court can be convened to pass final sentence. Here's what he was doing. Foremost of all, he taught that the scripture was the supreme guide of the church and that scripture was for everyone. Jesus taught, he said, the people simply and in their own language. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gave the apostles the gift of tongues so that everyone could hear the good news in his own language. So Wycliffe and his followers labored for 11 years translating the Bible into English. Press on in this work, he told his helpers. For if the people of England will read the scriptures for themselves, it will be the surest road for them to follow Christ and come to heaven. Wycliffe was willing to risk his own life because he was concerned for them because he sought the interest of Christ. He saw people as helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, yeah, they need the shepherd's guides. The Pope hoped to stop John Wycliffe and his ideas once and for all by condemning his writings and putting him to death. What would Wycliffe do? Would he try to save his own life by saying that he had been wrong? Would he tell his followers to put aside the Bible and submit to the leaders of the church? John Wycliffe did not retreat an inch. The Pope has no more power to judge than any other minister, he said. His words should be followed only so far as he follows the words of Christ. I am under obligation to obey the law of Christ. Master Wycliffe, one of his students said, what will become of you? What about your place in the university? What about your life? When I came to Oxford nearly 30 years ago, he said, I was enticed by the wisdom of the world, 
above everything else I wanted fame I wanted men to honor me but praise be to God who saved my soul and showed me the glories of his word I am already I am ready to follow the teachings of scripture even unto death if necessary finally a council was called Wycliffe stood before it his friends came to him and said and asked him not to appear what Wycliffe said should I live and be silent never let the blow fall I await its coming I intend with my whole heart he said by the grace of God to be a true Christian and as long as breath remains in me to proclaim and defend the law of Christ should have sense that Epaphroditus had that kind of heart and if Paul had said, listen, Epaphroditus, I'm going to send you back to Philippi. You might get killed. Epaphroditus would have said, and where is my ticket? Another saint, just one more, Amy Carmichael. Mid-19th century, early 20th century. She had this experience as a young woman. A great turning point in her life came and went on a wet and Sunday, windy, I'm sorry, on a wet and windy Sunday morning. While walking home from church with her family, they met a poor old woman burdened with a heavy load. Taking pity on her, Amy and her brothers picked up the bundle and walked arm in arm with her. The respectable churchgoers frowned upon this. Although Amy and her brothers felt awkward and embarrassed, they plodded on with the old woman. Suddenly the words from 1 Corinthians flashed through the drizzle. Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay and straw. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work if what he has built survives. Later, Amy wrote, the blinding flash had come and gone. The ordinary was all about us. We went on. I said nothing to anyone, but I knew something had happened that had changed life's values. Nothing could ever matter again but the things that were eternal. Amy's heart went out to the neighboring children for whom she organized a weekly program of Bible study, song, and prayer. The poor young women of the town shunned and neglected by most members were loved by Amy. Eyebrows raised whenever Amy trooped into the church with several of the young women from the wrong side of town. This was in her heart. And eventually she petitioned her mother to be able to go to India, which was unheard of in those days. The danger was great, so much so. Once a girl received Christ as her savior and fled to the mission compound, her family burned the mission school to the ground. Threats were common. In a letter home, Amy wrote, Pray that we who are, I'm sorry, pray that we who are his sworn soldiers abroad may throw our kid gloves to the winds and fight. She met with some success going around India with evangelistic crusades. And then she heard of a young girl that she named, that was named Pearl Eyes. And Pearl Eyes had been given by her parents to the Hindu temple as a slave. Pearl Eyes didn't like that. She ran away. She ran back home. Her parents, being afraid, took her back to the temple. And it broke Amy's heart. And finally Amy got this little girl. And then her and many, many Many others she took care of. One final paragraph. Children tie the mother's feet is an old Indian proverb. Amy found it to be true. At first frustrated with changing diapers, wiping noses, fixing large meals and rocking sick little ones to sleep, Amy asked, could it be right to turn from so much that might be of profit 
evangelistic tours, convention meetings for Christians and so forth, and just become a nursemaid. But then Amy was powerfully struck by the image of Christ wrapping himself in a towel and stooping to wash the disciples' feet. The Savior did not view humble service as small or unimportant. So Amy Carmichael willingly let her feet be tied for the love of whose feet were pierced. I think she thought of herself as a drink offering, as one who had the interest of Christ and who thus was concerned to come alongside others and in coming alongside others to sweeten, to lighten their burden. It's interesting in all of this, in this passage, Paul continues to use a little word serve and at times a little word minister to. And again, that little word is that word worship or liturgy. So that all of life really is worship. And that was his very point. And it's all modeled after our Lord Jesus, whose concern was for the interests of those who came to save. We know on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And how can we remember Jesus if not by remembering his atoning sacrifice, his unique sacrifice. His sacrifice was the sacrifice. His sacrifice was the very one which saved our souls, paid the penalty that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. And then he says, Receive eternal life from me and come and follow me. And my life is not only your atoning sacrifice, but it's your model. And while your sacrifice can never be atoning, while your life can never be atoning, still, he says, come and follow me. Seek my interests. Thus, be concerned for others and allow your life to be poured out as a drink offering to sweeten their burdens, to come alongside them and help them and bless them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even as these elements are before us and we think upon Christ and we think upon all that he did, we pray that you would enable us to not only receive his gift of salvation, his gift of forgiveness of sins from his atoning sacrifice, but that we too then would take up our cross and follow him and that you would enable us for our lives to be drink offerings poured out in such a way as to be a blessing to the body of Christ, a blessing in our community and throughout the whole world so that our lives would be worship 
so that you would be glorified, so that there would be many, many expressions of thanksgiving to God. Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and that you would use it in such a way as to really remind us of Christ, to increase our faith, to draw us to him, to receive even more fully in our own consciousness all that he has done. And Father, that you would also use it in us as we think upon him to cause us to walk more faithfully with him, to seek his interest, and to express his interest into the lives of others as we help them, as we share gospel with them. This, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. That he invites to this table, therefore, all those to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive and depend upon Him alone for their salvation as He is offered in the Gospel. And He invites to this table all those who therefore desire to live lives as become, becomes the followers of Christ. What's that mean? It means He calls to Himself and to this table all those who desire to seek His interests and thus to be concerned for the interests of others. And he comes and he says, Come, and I will help you, and I will strengthen you, and I will enable you to do just that, that your life may be a sweet aroma. Thus I invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, as you go back and eat it, think this. I am a follower of Christ, one who seeks his interests. Please come.